remember when? You got to love sentences that start with remember when. You remember when, and, and you kind of lean in so that you can, because you, you want to know what's coming next. Because sometimes remember when uh, is followed by something that is, is cherished, a, a memory that, that you have, that you call to mind, and, and, and it, just, it just puts a smile on your face. And then sometimes remember when is followed by a painful memory, one that you wish wasn't dug up. Or remember when brings to mind a promise that you made that maybe you kept or maybe you didn't keep. Well, the God that we worship this morning is a God who remembers. And that's what we're going to be thinking upon this morning as we return to the story of Noah. So please turn to Genesis chapter 8, if you would. That is where we're going to be this morning as we continue in our series in the book of Genesis. And what we've seen so far in the story is we've seen that God has created everything, including Adam and Eve, our first parents, and he gave Adam and Eve one rule, do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what did they do? They ate of the knowledge of the tree of good and evil. And so their children came onto the scene, Cain and Abel, and they had the knowledge of good and evil. In other words, they had their conscience of knowing what was right and wrong. And God told them to do well. And instead of doing well, Cain killed his brother Abel, and we have the first murder. And, and then we were introduced to a guy named Lamech. And Lamech didn't just kill one guy uh, who he was offended by, but it, it, it appears that he killed multiple people and he bragged about it. And so we begin to see in the early chapters of Genesis that sin grabs hold of humanity and begins to spiral out of control. And by the time we get into chapters 6 and 7, where we were, which we were at looking at last week, we see that wickedness in the world was defined by one word, violence. God kept saying over and over and over in these chapters that there's wickedness in this world, there's violence, violence covers the earth. Violence became the thing that defined this world. So much so that God says, I'm sorry that I even made man. I'm going to wipe every living thing off the face of this planet. But God appointed a family through whom He's going to rescue and save the world. And so he directs a man named Noah to build an ark and to get into the ark with his wife and his three boys and his three daughters-in-law and, and a whole bunch of animals. And they get into this boat and God flooded the earth. And that's where we ended last week. And so today, picking up the story, we're in, we're in Genesis 8, starting in verse 1. But God remembered. God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. Uh, when this word remembered shows up in the Bible and God is the subject of the sentence, it's a fantastic, fantastic sentence. Because, God, because remembering with God is very different from, with, from remembering with us. You see, we remember because we forgot uh, we remember where we put our keys. We remember where we put our pen. We remember that care portal information was today. 
We remember because we forgot. But remembering with God is very different because God is a God who knows everything. And so when the Bible says God remembered, what it's saying is that God is bringing to mind a promise that he made. And now in this moment, he is acting on that promise that he has made. When God remembers, he is calling to mind a promise that he has made, and he is acting on that promise right now. And so God had promised to save Noah and his wife and his kids and, 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 and their wives and all of these animals in the ark, and it says God remembered Noah. They had been on this ark for one year and 17 days. One year, 17 days, God gives the command. The earth is dried up. You could read the whole... Uh, you read the whole story on the way home, and then God commands for the doors to open and everyone to come out. And we pick up the story in verse 20 of chapter 8. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. Because God remembered Noah and acted on his promise, Noah remembered God and acted in worship. Think about this. If, if you're anything like me, you probably find life a, a little bit busy at times. You know, I'm a, I'm a husband, a, 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 a dad, a friend, a, a son, a church leader, a few things besides. So 24 hours in the day, many times, just doesn't feel like enough. And you probably know the feeling. Noah, however, I, it took it to a whole new level. I mean, when he emerged after a year on the ark, he was... He was faced with the mother of all to-do lists. Human civilization had been destroyed, and he was in charge of the reconstruction. He was head of the sole surviving human family. He needed, he needed to build shelter and fences to corral their, their, their animals. There were bodies to clear and fields to prepare, as well as planting and plowing and, and, and planting and Noah might have buckled under all of these priorities, but instead he found strength by attending to the most important one. The first thing Noah did when he stepped out of the ark was to lay down his tools and become before God in worship. It was a deliberate statement of faith that this salvation had begun. His salvation had begun and ended with God. It was God who had warned him to build an ark to to exacting specifications because judgment was coming. It was God who shut the door of the ark and, and, and caused it to flow while all of his neighbors perished in the floodwaters outside. And in recognition of this fact, the first thing Noah built was not a house or a cattle shed, but an altar on which he could offer a sacrifice to worship the Lord, the God of his salvation. He wasn't trying to earn God's favor. He already had been given his his, his favor. He wasn't trying to pay God back. He could never pay God back. He was doing what people of God always do when they're aware that they are the recipients of grace. He responded in worship. And the Lord, the Lord was delighted. He, the, the smell of the offering stirred in him to reply. Verse 21, and then the Lord's and when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, 
Cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. Now that is a remarkable passage. It it, it starts by saying, when God smelled the pleasing aroma. And that statement that God smells a pleasing aroma appears 43 times in the Old Testament. And every time it's, it's attached to... An offering, these, these burnt offerings of animal or grain or, or wine are given to God and God's smelling the offering and God is pleased. There's a, there's a pleasing aroma to it. When we get to the New Testament in Ephesians 5, we see that Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, it was the ultimate sacrifice, was a pleasing aroma to God. And now because of that, 2 Corinthians 2, we see that we now have the aroma of Christ, which is pleasing to God. In other words, for those of us who follow Jesus, we are the aroma of Christ now. And it's pleasing, a life lived under the sacrifice of Jesus. It's a pleasing aroma to God. And in the Old Testament, it was always these offerings. But it, then it's remarkable. Look at, look at what it says. The Lord then said in his heart. So when the Lord smelled the pleasing offering, the Lord said in his heart. Now, God didn't say this out loud. He didn't say it to Noah. He didn't say it to the rest of creation. Through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we get to see what God said in his heart to himself. And he said this, I will never again curse the, the ground because of man. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. Now think about this. We're, we human beings are unique among creation. We uni- we're uniquely created in the image of God. We're, we're uniquely created, therefore, to be able to live a righteous, holy life or to live sin-filled, unrighteous lives. We're different than the rest of creation. And our sin doesn't just impact our relationship with God. It doesn't just impact the relationship that we have with people around us. Our sin affects all of creation. We mustn't forget that the flood that flooded the entire earth is not just wiping out humans, but destroying all of creation. And it was because of mankind's sin. And God in this passage is committing himself to the preservation of this creation, to the protection of this creation. Look what he promises. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. I will see to it, says God. Tim Keller on this passage, he says this, and I love what he says. He says, God says, I love the mountains. I love the trees. I love the bunny rabbits. I love the beetles. I love everything I've made, and I'm not just its creator. I am its savior. I am not going to let it be cursed because of the sin of the gardeners, of the vice regents, of the human beings I've put into this world to take care of it. If you're going to rape and pillage the earth, I, will, I won't let that happen. I'm going to take care of it. I'm going to be the savior of it all. Now think for a second about how, how we think about creation and even the environment. You know, the fact is we Westerners tend to be very pragmatic. We say, well, we need to take care of the planet and take care of the environment. Uh, otherwise, it, it's going to be destroyed and where are we going to live? 
whereas Easterners are, are, are all very mystical about creation. They say, well, all of this is sacred. Well, Christians have a unique position. We say God loves his creation, and God has promised that he will sustain his creation. And God would like a little bit of cooperation from people who are on his team in this. In, in fact, we talked a bit about this uh, a little bit last week when I mentioned that great uh, G.K. Chesterton quote where he says, nature is not our mother, nature is our sister. And that was such, and it's such a profound way of describing our relationship to the world. We don't want to venerate the world as if it's our mother. It's not. God is our father. God is our creator. We get our life from him, not from some vague impersonal nature. But nature is our sister. We have the same father, and actually we have a responsibility to cherish her and protect her and prize her like God does because she comes from the same creator as I do. In other words, taking care of the environment, being environmentally responsible, is not a political issue. It's a God thing. And God knows, by the way, that we're going to really suck at it. Um, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. We are not innocent. We're born guilty. We're born sinful. I mean, have you ever met a child? And as men and women exist on this planet, as long as they do, as long as we do, there will be sin. And that sin will affect our relationship with God. It will affect our relationship with people. And it will affect the entire creation. And so God now, in this new world, bringing Noah and his family out of the ark, lays down some new rules of how things are going to go now. Genesis 9, verse 1. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Same thing he told to Adam and Eve, the only commandment that humans have ever obeyed. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and, uh, and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. In, in other words, the relationship you have with the rest of creation is now changed. You're not going to coexist easily with the rest of creation. Have you ever wondered how Noah got all of the animals in the ark? It, appear, it appeared that there, there was no fear or, or, or dread. And so he just said, hey guys, get on board. And they're like, okay. And they got on board. It was a little easier time then. But now there's fear and dread. That doesn't mean we can't interact with animals and we don't interact with the rest of creation. It's just that now it's going to be a lot more difficult. They are now given into our hands. And what does that mean? Well, he tells us in the next verse, Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. In other words, from this point forward, animals are now food. And the impression that we get is before the flood, everyone was a vegetarian. But now everyone is not necessarily a vegetarian. Now, that doesn't mean that being a vegetarian is bad. It just means God says, now listen, now you can eat, you can eat animals and you can eat vegetables. And it works out perfectly. You can now have a BLT. You can, you can have a salad with bacon bits. He does give one exception, though. He says, but you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, 
its blood. In other words, don't eat an animal that's still alive. And I don't think many of us struggle with that one. But there's a really important point embedded in this. You know, the Bible talks a lot about blood. We sing a lot of songs about blood because the Bible talks about this a lot. That, that blood is connected to life. That, 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 that these, are, these are important things that work together and that sin requires the taking of a life, the sacrifice of blood. We've already seen this echoed uh, throughout Genesis in the story of Adam and Eve. We see God killed an animal and took its hide and he, and he created clothes for Adam and Eve. We, we see that Abel uh, sacrificed an animal. We see that Noah sacrificed an animal. Even in these early chapters in Genesis, we begin to learn how important blood sacrifice is going to be. We see echoes of this that will ultimately work itself out in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ as he is sacrificed on the cross and his blood is shed for, for all of our sins. That after multitudes of generations of sheep and lambs and rams and goats and, and bulls being sacrificed, and all of these things cleansing people externally, but none of them quite dealing with the root problem of the human heart that we all have after generations and thousands of years of that. We finally see it come to a glorious end as Jesus steps in and offers himself as a sacrifice that renders all other sacrifices redundant. And that becomes one of those major themes uh, throughout the scripture, that blood is life, and life is blood. Verse 5, And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. Don't forget that the blood came in part because of the sinful violence in this world. And so God's new rule is this, if, you, if, if an animal takes a life or a human takes a life, the animal or the human loses theirs. Why? He says, because men and women are created in the image of God. And God cares so much about his image that he says, I will not have you taking the life of someone created in my image. That, that will bear the ultimate earthly penalty that you can have. You take a life, you lose a life. A dog attacks a toddler, the dog's life goes down. A human intentionally takes a human life, God says they lose their life. This is not a political issue. This is why so many Christians are so staunchly pro-life. Because God cares about every human being created in in his image. And for me, this passage is talking about life being in the blood. We, we like to talk about when does life begin? When, does it begin at conception? Does it begin at birth? You know what I see? I see that a mom and a baby can have different blood types when that baby is in the womb and life is in that blood. And so from the time of conception, and it's one of many arguments from Scripture as to why I am so staunchly pro-life. Why we protect babies. Again, it's not a political issue. There are some that say, well, how can you be pro-life and also be pro-capital punishment? And I'm, gonna, I'm not going to get into that whole thing, but, but, but look at this passage. This is why. 
Because God says, I care so much about people created in my image that if you take a life, the government has the authority to take another life. Again, not a political issue. It's a God issue. I'm sure to pretty much have offended everybody by now. We've talked about the environment, abortion, capital punishment. We've hit all the big political hot topics there. Actually, the Bible did that for me. I just read it. Verse 7. And you be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. And God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as come out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. This is God making a covenant with all people and all animals for all time. He will never, ever, ever flood the earth again. And just like all covenants, he gives a sign. For those of you who are married, you, you carry a covenant sign on your finger. Most of us wear a, a wedding ring. I don't know, why, wait, don't know why they're called wedding rings. It should be a marriage ring. Uh, you know, it, it, it lasts more than a, a day. It's, it's a covenant, and we carry a sign of that. For those of you who are followers of Jesus, you're, you're Christians, you should have been baptized. If you have not been baptized, talk to Mike or me after the service. We'll take care of that because the first thing you do as a follower of Jesus is to be baptized it's a sign of the covenant relationship that you have we have these covenant relationships and God gives now a sign to his covenant uh, with uh, with all this covenant with all people and all animals for all time he says this and God said this is a sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. And when I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. God, by the way, is using this unbelievably long run-on repetitive sentence here, but he's doing so to establish an important point that he is setting a sign in the sky. And we know that bow to be the rainbow. Now, what's really interesting is that the word for bow is the same word in Hebrew used for kind of a bow that one uses in battle, as in bow and arrows or, or crossbow. And so there are a lot of commentators who believe that what God is describing here, it's almost like he's saying, I am going to hang my crossbow in the sky in the rain. Every time there's clouds and rain to show that this part of my arsenal, this flood, will never be used against humanity again, against animals again, that I will not wipe them off the face of the earth. See, I am hanging my big rainbow-colored bedazzled crossbow in the sky. I will not wipe out the world again with a flood. I will remember. Now, who is this rainbow for? 
When you're a little kid, you're probably taught it was for you. So that every time you look into the sky and you see the rainbow, you remember that God is not going to wipe out the world with a flood. Yeah, that's cute. It's a good, good application. It's not what the scripture says. Twice in this passage, it tells us exactly why. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember. The rainbow is for God. It's so that every time he sets the rainbow in the sky, every time that there's rain that causes a rainbow, he will remember. And what is God remembering? It's God calling to mind his promise and acting on it right now. So it begins to rain, and God acts on his promise in that rain and says, I will not flood the earth with this rain either. And the next time it rains, he says, I will not flood the earth with this rain one either. Every single time there's a rainbow, God remembers and he acts on that promise. Even when we're wicked. Even when we deserve it. Even when every intention of ours is evil from our youth. And this is so very important to the story of redemption because if you've read the Bible story so far, just the first few chapters of Genesis, we know that God is good and there is evil in the world and that God has promised to destroy evil. But that presents a huge problem because evil is not something you and I can look at and say, oh, it's over there and not in here. So what that means is that if God is going to destroy evil, he has to destroy me. In other words, the obvious way of getting rid of evil in this world is to get rid of Daryl and to get rid of you as well. But God, in this moment, promises he's not going to do that. I will, I, will, I will never get rid of evil by destroying everybody. And therefore, my only way of getting rid of evil is not to destroy, but to transform those people who are doing evil already. That's the only choice I have. It's a choice I might have with my garden, if you like. My garden is overflowing with weeds, loads and loads of weeds everywhere in my garden. And I only have two choices, really, with, with something like that. I can go in there just with, you know, black plastic or something like that and just cover and just destroy everything. That's what I could do. That would be the easiest way out of the problem. And God has that option. You, you, you want to get rid of the weeds, you just carpet the whole thing with something. You cover it with plastic. The only alternative is that you put good seed in and you work incredibly hard to get good seed and good plants to take in the midst of the bad and you gradually transform it from the inside out. Those are your two options. Those are God's two options with, this, his, with his world. I, I, I can, de can destroy everything, which is what he does in the flood, or I can transform over a long period and a lot of work and a lot of sacrifice from me, gradually bringing transformation to this garden, to this world, this human race that I have made. Quickest way for God to get rid of evil is just to destroy all of us. But God, from this moment, has promised never to do that. He says, I am never going to do that. No matter how bad it gets, no matter what I see, and there's a lot of evil in this world, isn't there? But God has covenanted, no matter what I see, I will not judge evil by destroying everything. I will only renew the world and cleanse it from evil by transforming it from the inside. 
And so, yeah, every time you, you and I see a rainbow in the sky, we also are reminded of that promise that God has said, no matter how low it gets, no matter what you saw in Nazi Germany or Rwanda or wherever it might be, the Ukraine today or the world around you, I am never going to just wipe everyone out. My only option is to bring transformation and rescue from within. The rainbow then is a sign of God's promise that he has hung up his bow. And it's a reminder to himself of his grace towards the earth. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Jepheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. And Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. And when Shem and Jepheth took a garment, or then they took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward and they did not see their father's nakedness. So Noah who walked with God, who is righteous, who God called blameless in his generation, becomes what one pastor has referred to as a premeditated drunk. Because it's very clear that he began a process that was going to work out all the way to the end of this story. You know, he, he brought the seeds onto the ark with him so that he could plant a vineyard. And he planted a vineyard so that he could grow grapes. And he got grapes so that he could smush them down into grape juice so that they could ferment, so that he could have wine, so that he could get drunk. And then in culmination of it all, he passes out drunk in his tent, naked. I mean, within just a few verses of God making his great covenant with Noah, the man is drunk and lying naked in his tent. And it's a graphic reminder that the best of men are only men at best. It's a reminder that Noah isn't the hero of this story. And I love the Bible. It's such an honest book. I mean, I mean, if this book were created by man, where we were trying somehow to convince us all that these were, you know, perfect heroic men and that God somehow used them because of their righteousness, we wouldn't have stories like this. But what we see is that Noah, just like every single one of us, as a righteous man whom God had favor, the favor of his eyes toward, but he's still a sinner like the rest of us. He had a bad day. And his bad day got worse because his boy Ham come in, came in and, and saw him naked, passed out on the floor of his tent. And here's the, the, the thing. That word saw, it, it, it's not just like a, a glance and ooh, you know, because, you know, you, you know, all of us would do that if we saw our dad naked. No one wants to see their dad naked. But, 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 but Ham, the word, the word in Hebrew is he saw searchingly. Which means he went into the tent and he just looked at his dad and, and he kept looking at him naked. And then he went and found his brothers. He says, guys, you've got to see dad naked. And the brothers are like, we're not going to look at dad naked. And they walk in backward, the cloak between them, and they put it over him and cover their dad. Verse 24, when Noah awoke from his wine, hungover, 
and knew what his youngest son had done to him, someone told him, he said, cursed be Canaan, a servant of, uh, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, the le- and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Jephthah and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. First of all, notice that Noah is not cursed or condemned by God. Noah had a bad day. Yeah, he sinned. Getting drunk is a sin. Scripture's clear about that. His drunkenness is a sin, but nobody, nobody gets on Noah's case here for that sin. Something more sinful is happening in this passage. Whatever Ham did to his dad. Now, there are some who take this passage, I think, in a very weird way and say that there was some sexual assault going on here. I don't think that's a normal reading of this because it's got this word saw searchingly. I, I think something is happening that it's very hard for us to see as a very big deal because our culture does not see it as a big deal. And that is that Ham was disrespecting his dad. Ham was disrespecting his dad. He made fun of his dad. Our culture has made that into a sport. Sitcoms, commercials, they make fun of dad. Wives make fun of their husbands in front of their kids. Kids make fun of their dads in front of their friends. We are a disrespectful culture. Our culture is so disrespectful that we don't even see it as a sin. But here's what the Bible says. One of the Ten Commandments. These are the big ones, you know. Honor your father and your mother. In the book of Deuteronomy, if a child is stubborn and rebellious and will not listen again and again and again to the point that they don't know what to do with them, the parents were told to bring them to the elders at the gate. And if the kid did not repent of their stubborn rebelliousness towards his parents... It was a capital punishment. In Romans 1, it lists all kinds of terrible sins, including haters of God. And we also have disobedient to parents. And here's my favorite verse that I used to put on the refrigerator for my kids when they were younger. No, I didn't. Um, I'm kidding. But Proverbs 30, 17, The eye that mocks a father and scorns to obey a mother will be picked out by the ravens of the valley and eaten by the vultures. Here's the thing. How clear does Scripture have to be? We are a disrespectful, dishonoring culture. And this was Ham's sin. And so Noah brings blessing and and curse. The blessing is to his two of his boys, and the cursing is to his grandson, Canaan. The cursing isn't even to Ham. The, the cursing is to Ham's son, Canaan. And, 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 and this is probably some kind of prophecy given by God to Noah about what will, what's going to happen with these, these family lines, because Canaan turns into the Canaanites, and if you know your Old Testament, you know that they become the enemy of the people of God for a very, very long time until eventually uh, they're wiped out. But one way or another, this is what we see. Sin has already reared its ugly head two steps out of the ark. Because wherever there are humans, there is sin. And there's so much that we can apply from this, but here's what was striking to me this week. The intention of our hearts is evil from our youth. Every one of us. 
Like Noah, we can be a person who walks with God and is righteous and is blameless in the sight of the Lord and makes great sacrifices. And then one day just get drunk in our tent naked and passed out. Like Ham, who was saved with his immediate family from this flood with, 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 while everyone else was wiped off the, the face of the planet and he still disrespects his dad, who God has referred to as righteous and blameless. But even though every intention of our heart is wicked, God is a remembering God. God declared that one day he was going to save the world through a human being, and so he saved a human family. And he wiped out everything off the face of the earth, and he said, I'll never do this again. And so he puts a bow in the sky to remember to, to never do that again and to act on that promise. God makes promises, and he keeps promises. But if you're like me, you are going to continue to screw up again and again and again. You're going to be like me. You're going to be like Noah. You're going to be like Ham. So I want to give you, I want to give you the best promise in Scripture. Hebrews, Hebrews 10, where God says this to those who follow Jesus. I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there's forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Here's what happens. When you place your faith in Jesus, he gives you a new spirit. And he changes who you are. And he begins to work on you from the inside out. Yes, you're going to continue to sin. But he has promised to forget. And just like remembering, forgetting is a very different thing with God. God obviously knows everything, but he has decided to act on his promise to forget. Which means one day as we see him in the book of Revelation, God sits there with, with, with two books in his hands. The book of deeds and the book of life. And the book of deeds is everything that you have ever done. And the book of life has names. And, be, and before looking in the book of deeds, God will look in the book of names. And if you have placed your faith in Jesus, you know, your name is in the book of life. He closes this book. And he promises to never remember your sinful, lawless deeds anymore. And that's what Jesus brings for us on the cross. Jesus, whose sacrifice and offering was a pleasing aroma to God so that we, as his followers, can smell like the pleasing aroma of Jesus. Let's pray.